Uh, Wednesday night, we're gonna continue through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, we're moseying through Mark. It's taken us a little while getting through this, but um, we, we uh, are kind of in the middle. Uh, we need to finish up. Uh, well, we actually finished up um, Mark 14, fortunately, Wednesday night. But we're, we're really in the middle of the, the Holy Week, the middle of the, the story of the cross. And Mark chapter 15 is where we read that. It's sometimes referred to as the Holy of Holies of the Bible because of uh, the event, um, the cross itself. And uh, what I'd like to do is a little different. Um, uh, Paul told Timothy, um, you know, give attendance to the reading of scripture. And I think sometimes we churches, we tend to, you know, tack on a little verse here and there, but it, there's something really healthy about just reading a good section. And um, I can't think of a better section to read through on this Sunday morning um, than the, the story of the cross. So we're gonna read through this. I'm gonna talk about a few things. Then we're gonna go to the table of communion. How appropriate is that uh, as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ? We'll finish the service off with that. Um, and then Wednesday night, we'll do a deeper dive into this chapter because there's so much to talk about um, and learn really and grow in. So um, let's just take a, a look at it here. Mark chapter 15, verse one. It says, and straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, answerest thou nothing? Behold, now many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yes, yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at that feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people, that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to be content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium and they, called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. And they bring him unto a place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads saying, ah, oh, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified 
with him, reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calls Elias or Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to drink saying, let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him to Jerusalem. And now when the evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. As we read through the story of the cross here in Mark's account, um, it's interesting how the world today perceives the story of the cross and the cross itself. You know, um, we've become familiar with it. A lot of people in the world think, well, some guy died on a cross in Jerusalem and they don't really know what it means. They don't really care to know what it means. Um, And really it's become kind of a a sort of a weird thing. Why do people go and worship Jesus who died on a cross? A bloody religion they call Christianity uh, because of the cross and stuff like that. But they don't really understand the nuances or any of the details of why the story of the cross is so powerful. And and what makes the cross of Jesus different than any other cross? Um, Josephus, the ancient historian from the first century writes how the Romans crucified hundreds of people all the time. In fact, there's one writing, ancient writing, that says that there were so many crucifixions going on by the Romans in the first century that there were times the lumber yards ran out of lumber. They couldn't find enough lumber to crucify people. That's how bad it was during those times. So what makes the cross of Jesus so unique? Some you know, carpenter from Galilee who was accused of some stuff and got crucified. What makes it different? And why, why does that suddenly, well, not only did the, the world change from that day forward, but the cross becomes a symbol that means, well, what does it mean? Um, That's the question. Uh, It's interesting to me how, um, you know, the cross has become sort of a thing. Is is the cross special because Jesus was a good teacher or a prophet and he died on a cross? Is that what made it special? Um, Why would people wear necklaces with a cross? Um, Because, you know, think about it. It's like an electric chair or a gas chamber or a lethal injection table, or it was, a, it was a cruel instrument of death. Why would some people wear it as a necklace? And, 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 you know, some of us, we know, it's because they understand what the cross is and have a love for the cross and what Jesus did for them on the cross. But it, it kind of causes me concern when I see, um, you know, the notable icon of the cross on people like Britney Spears and Madonna and Rihanna and Beyonce and all these, you know, uh, girls sporting the cross in Hollywood and musicians, celebrities, athletes, uh, tattoos everywhere of crosses. Like, do, do people really understand what the cross, or has there been a cheapening? You know, it's interesting because A.C. Creek gets a flack because we don't have a cross. There's no, no cross to be found on our um, on our grounds. Uh, there's a cross on the window there if you look closely. Uh, <clears throat> you know, 
it's funny because I love crosses. People say, Brett doesn't like crosses. That's why, no, first of all, we have a governing board here that makes decisions, not me. And then second of all, um, I I have a love in my heart for the cross. I have a cross in my office, believe it or not. Um, And and, you know, what's interesting is, um, I I think one of the reasons why we haven't put a cross up here is because of the cheapening of the cross. Crosses on churches, crosses on tombstones, crosses on people's necks and stuff. Um, And I I almost wonder, you know, in some ways it's almost become like a graven image to some people. Um, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, one of the 10 commandments. And yet people treat it almost like an icon that you worship. And I think that's a dangerous kind of thing. And really, is it the cross itself or what the cross stands for and what it means? You see, I, I, I'm concerned. You know, um, A.W. Tozer, I tend to read the dead guys. Um, I don't read living people because they're all kind of still wacko and they still might say something really stupid. Um, I like the dead guys that can't say anything stupid. Uh, and one of the guys that made it, uh, and he pushed the limits, man. One of my favorite guys, because he was really heavy, really heavy, A.W. Tozer. Anybody a Tozer fan here? Yeah, I, I like A.W. Tozer and I, I've read all his books, um, but he was heavy, uh, but he was so right. In fact, he's one of the guys that said stuff that I think even 30 years ago, as I was reading some of his books, I'd think, oh, that's taking it a little too far. But as time goes by, his words age really well, like this one. Um, Tozer's the one kind of voicing the same concern I'm mentioning. He said, the old cross slew men, the new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned, the new cross amuses. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. And he went on in his book to write about how the cheapening of the cross and and people not really understanding what it really means and songs that we're saying and stuff like that, that maybe we've become numb to the cross because it's everywhere. It's everywhere in secular culture, but it's also everywhere in Christian culture. and so it's, it's important for us to remember the full story of the, of the cross and what it really means. I remember as a kid, uh, I went to a camp once and I heard the story told that was an illustration, an allegory, um, that this uh, one pastor was trying to help us children understand the cross. And I think this may have been one of the first times it, it sort of um, struck a chord in my heart more than it ever had, had struck before. There at camp, he told us the story of one afternoon, a bus driver, as he was taking 40 children home from school, um, a good bus driver, he made his way down the steep hill into the main part of town there where he was gonna drop off some kids at their houses and what have they. But, um, but as he was coming down the hill, the air brakes of the bus failed. There was nothing. There was no uh, emergency brake. There was the air, the air brakes failed completely. And he was barreling down the hill at rapid, ever-increasing speed. And at the end of the bottom of the hill, there was really no options. There was just a bunch of big buildings that he would smash into, certainly killing all the 40 children. But as he was desperate and thinking, he remembered there was one little alleyway that he thought I might be able to thread the bus through that alleyway, which would go out through the town and out into a big game field where he could perhaps coast the bus safely to a stop. And so he, he kind of prepared himself as he's barreling down, he's gonna try to thread the needle, you know, through that alleyway. And, 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 and he was just thinking, oh, I hope there's no car or, or object or a person uh, standing in that way. He knew that area pretty well because his house was nearby. And, and so he knew that area. So he thought, I'm gonna do it. And so sure enough, as he came down to his horror, there was a little child standing in the alleyway, looking at the bus, waving as it was coming at him. And with a tear running down his cheek, he had a decision, do I save the one and kill the 40 or do I run over the one and save the, save the 40? With tears running down his cheeks, he knew what he had to do as he's barreling through. He, he runs through the alley, killing the child in the, in the alleyway. And sure enough, the bus goes through and coasts out into the big game field, paramedics, police, um, eventually the parents, everybody came around and they were touting the bus driver as a great hero um, and saving all those children. Yes, there was tragedy, but oh man, the greater good, you know. But as the parents were noticing, the bus driver was off just over in the side of the field, sobbing, sobbing. And they said, man, he did such a great thing. He shouldn't be sad. They said, yeah, but did you know the little child that was in the aisle was his own son? 
I remember hearing that story thinking, oh man, that, that, you know, and, and then the, the pastor went on to say, and that really is nothing compared to what God did. It's nothing. Um, what God did, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I remember as a kid, that little story kind of bringing it home for my little mindset. Um, and it's something that I constantly think about is how, man, you know, the little boy had no choice in the matter in that story, but our savior, Jesus, was the one who the father sent, yes, put his, his son in, in a place of real peril, but he also did it willingly. And see, this is the stuff that we need to remember about the cross. In fact, as we consider this story, I'd like to consider the three Vs of, uh, of the cross story um, uh, as, as we consider Mark chapter 15. Um, and, and so um, what are the three Vs? Well, if you're jotting down notes, maybe you can jot them down. First of all, I wanna notice Christ's death was voluntary. One of the things I've been kind of harping on because the Bible, the narrative here in Matthew and Mark has reminded us that Jesus did all of this willingly, voluntarily. Um, he gave his, up his own life. And, and this is something that you gotta remember on the surface, it looks like the Romans took control or the Jews killed Jesus. Um, do you remember when Mel Gibson was making the, the big Jesus movie? Um, I don't know how many years ago that was, probably 20 something years ago now, I don't know. Um, but I remember when it was coming out, the Jews were protesting saying, Mel Gibson's making it look like the Jews killed Jesus. And, um, and, uh, and my response to that is, well, the Jews did kill Jesus. And so did the Romans. And so did we. We all, we're all guilty. And one of the things that Mel Gibson, even though Mel Gibson is so misguided in a lot of things in his poor life, um, one thing that, that I was kind of impressed by, did you know in that movie, when, when you see the scene, which, which the crucifixion scene in that movie, I have to say is probably the most accurate one ever put on film. And it was very much accurate to uh, first century crucifixion history. But one of the scenes, um, it shows the hammer and the nail as, as, and the hand holding the nail. And Mel Gibson insisted that it would be his hand holding the hammer and his hand holding the nail in that scene. And when they asked him, why would you do that? He said, because I'm the one who put Jesus on the cross. Um, that, that was his worldview and that's the right thing. Um, you see, we're the ones who are guilty. So, you know, um, Jesus, you know, it was the Romans, Jews, it was us, but really it was, it was himself, he himself who willingly went to the cross knowing what he needed to do. And Jesus would remind us in the narrative several times about that. In fact, John chapter 19 is probably the most powerful statement um, in the gospel of John. You know, Mark is more abbreviated, uh, so we didn't get the full conversation in Mark, but in John chapter 19, then said Pilate unto him, speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and have the power to release thee? And Jesus answered, thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. By the way, I hope you don't have a Pontius Pilate attitude. I am powerful. I am in control of my destiny and yours too. And I'm, you know, I'm the boss. I could hire you or fire you. Like there's people that have a Pilate complex where they think they're the all powerful one. But remember the words of Jesus, you could have no power at all except to be given thee from above. Daniel uh, talked about in Daniel 2.21 how God raises kings up and he puts kings down. And you know, we think we elect presidents. God puts people into power. Um, you know, it's, it's really an interesting thing when you realize we're really out of control and the Lord is the one who's in control. But that's one of the things we notice in the story of the narrative as we've been going through Mark and Matthew, we've seen that Jesus knows exactly what's going on and he's in complete control the whole time. Um, sometimes the movies make it look like Jesus is surprised. Oh, oh no, here comes the, guy, the soldiers, you know, and, and they're dragging him off, kicking and screaming. That's not what happened. Um, remember in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus, you know, very much clearly articulated the whole story. He said, you know, behold, we're gonna go to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the son of man's gonna be delivered to the scribes, the Pharisees and the, the chief priests. And um, they're gonna condemn him to death they're gonna scourge him and uh, deliver him to the Romans and mock him and spit upon him. Like Jesus knew every little detail. Then they're gonna hang him on a cross and kill him. And on the third day, he's gonna rise again. Jesus said this several times to the disciples. He knew exactly what was happening. He was not surprised or shocked. 
Um, he went willingly to do all this stuff, going to Jerusalem and the rest. Um, you know, uh, to think, you know, that Jesus was like at the mercy of humanity um, is kind of almost laughable. You know, we love stories. Humanity loves stories that are like, um, you know, the, the dupe, the, the guy that looks like he doesn't know what he's doing and everybody thinks he's a loser. And then you find out, wow, he actually is the most powerful, smartest, greatest. You know, we love stories like that. One of my favorite things on uh, social media right now is this guy named, well, his fake name, I think it's Anatoly. Does anybody see Anatoly? Um, as a former powerlifter, I used to compete in powerlifting, but um, there's this guy, he's a, a Russian guy, and, and he, um, he goes into the most famous you know, uh, powerlifting gyms in the world, and, um, and he comes in wearing this little janitor outfit, he's got a mop and a bucket, and he walks around, you know, and he talks like this, he's like, <laughs> he's like this little doofy guy you know, with a long kind of beard, and he looks funny, thick glasses. And he walks in and there's all these huge guys, bulging biceps, you know, and they're lifting, ah, and they're all walking around tough, you know, and all this stuff. And he's like, and he's mopping. Well, the thing about this guy, he probably doesn't weigh more than 175 pounds, but he's freakishly strong. So he goes in there and he messes around and, and, um, and he's like, ooh, can I clean under your weights? And they're like, and the big guy's like, yeah, whatever. And, and then he walks up and like these guys will be doing deadlifts, you know, and, and they're thinking they're all awesome doing this and looking all tough walking around like this. And he walks up with one mop in one hand, with one hand he grabs the, and he, and he deadlifts with one hand, walks it over and sets it down. And, and all these huge guys are like, oh. It's like the funniest thing. And this guy just is freakishly strong. Um, he, he can do things that, it's almost like superhuman, it's hilarious. Um, but, um, you know, and then, then suddenly all these people change their tune, you know, and they're like, oh, well, uh, and then he starts giving pointers. Here's how you, if you wanna be strong like me, you know, it's like, it's hilarious. Um, but we love a story like that. We love the underdog, the guy that everybody thinks, you know, don't forget Jesus was in complete control and the power that was availed to Jesus you know, like the story of them punching him and hail king of the Jews as they bow down and worship and spit upon him. And, and, and don't forget, you know, Jesus could have splattered their brains on the wall if he wanted to, just with a thought. Um, I'm reminded of that, if you remember Matthew chapter 26, um, where it says there in Matthew 26, verse 53 and 54, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father? and shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that this must be? In other words, I could bring 12 legions. Question, how much is one legion? Well, in the Roman army, it was around 6,000 soldiers. Uh, so how many soldiers is that? Let's see now, uh, uh, 12 uh, times 6,000. So carry the one, 72,000. Uh, 72,000 angels. Now, now, I know some of you guys are thinking Hallmark angels, little... Little angels, you know, like when I get a fly swatter out or whatever, angels flying around. Um, that's not what was going on. In the Bible, most of the angels are warrior angels and they're huge, honking angels. Um, you know, don't forget there uh, in 2 Kings chapter 19, Rabshakeh the trash talker, remember the Assyrian? The Assyrian army is perhaps, if you know your history, probably the one, of those, one of the most terrifying armies in the world's history. Right up there with maybe Genghis Khan and some of the others, you know, that were horrifying armies that did horrible things. Um, the, the Assyrians might have been the worst. They'd, they'd go into a city and conquer it, and then they get the leaders out in front of the town people, skin them alive, and then fly their skins as flags over the city to remind the people that the Assyrians are in town. Like, that's just a normal day at the office for the Assyrian army. So the, the Jews were freaked out. So they're hiding up in Jerusalem, boarded up, gates shut. 185,000 Syrian soldiers surround Jerusalem. And so what does God do? There's the Jews shaking in their sandals in, in Jerusalem. And in the nighttime, one angel shows up, just one, and slaughters 185,000 of the worst Assyrian soldiers in the world's history. 185,000 of them killed in one fatal swoop by one angel. Um, the book of Revelation, if, if you're not a Christian here and the rapture of the church happens and you're left behind, I'm giving you a heads up. Uh, which, one of the things you're gonna see, uh, one of the things you're gonna see is Revelation chapter 10. Uh, the, an angel's gonna show up. Check out this angel, he's honking. It says in Revelation 10, and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head. Oh, that's Hallmark. No, but wait. Um, uh, the rainbow's on his head and his face was like the sun and his feet were as pillars of fire and he had in his hand a little book open. 
and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. So like one foot in the ocean, one foot uh, on the continent is kind of the idea here. And he cries with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. We're not talking Hallmark. Can you imagine? You're in the earth, all of a sudden you see this giant, <coughs> like, this, like this is, it's a roar of a lion. And then that, the roar of the lion induces these thunders um, from the sky. Like this is one scary dude that's gonna show up in the tribulation period. Um, yeah, you don't wanna mess with a warrior angel. Jesus could have called 72,000 of these guys down. That's, that's what he's saying um, to defend himself but man, Jesus, he says, I'm gonna humble myself, make myself of no reputation, take upon the form of a servant and be obedient even to the death of the cross. Talk about a hero. Um, that's Jesus, that's the one we serve. So many angels, you know, he could have called down. Jesus didn't choose to stop it. Why did he not stop um, the crucifixion? Because he knew what he was doing. Um, and he did it willingly, not reluctantly even, as we looked at this last week, Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, you know, why did Jesus choose to do this willingly? It was the joy set before him, and, and in a word, the love that he had for us. In fact, John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. This is what Jesus said. And he calls us his friends, which is shocking in and of itself. But he lays down his life for his friends. Um, and I'll just tell you, his friends are a bunch of rascals. Um, in fact, they're, they're actually evil. You're talking about us, Brett. Yep, exactly. Uh, a few other verses, John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus said, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life, that's willingly, voluntarily, that I might take it up again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. That's the resurrection. Um, this commandment have I received of my father. So Jesus is being obedient to the commandment of the father, being willing to lay down his life. Even though the father commanded it, he still was willing and he, he did it uh, for you and me willingly. Um, and then Romans, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, 6 or 8. He says, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. You know, one thing Satan will never accuse you of is you're so godly, but he will accuse you of being ungodly. You're so ungodly. There you are sitting in Athey Creek Christian Fellowship with all those holy people and you call yourself a Christian. Um, I always remind Satan when, when Satan, you know, the Bible says, agree with your adversary. And, and he says, Brett, you're ungodly. I'll say, you're right. And guess what? When, when I was without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, per a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like this is where the Bible says, you know, it's amazing if somebody's willing to die for a great man. Um, it's, it's a little less frequent if a guy dies for a good man, but what about dying for a wretched, miserable sinner who's not good at all? That's what I mean when I say we're all rascals uh, and that's a nice way of putting it. While we were yet in our sin, doing our very sinful deeds, Christ said, I'm gonna die for that person because I love them. It was the love that... Christ went to his death voluntarily. I think that's an important part of the cross is understand Christ's willingness to go there. Joy that was set before him, even while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us so much that he died for us. So point number one, the first V, Christ's death was voluntary. Number two, Christ's death was vicarious. Vicarious, brother, you just work in the V a little too hard there. Uh, why do you have to use the word vicarious? Well, there's very much intention on this. Um, the, did you know there's a doctrine that we call vicarious atonement? It's one of the great doctrines of the Bible. Um, that's why I use this word vicarious. In fact, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, vicarious is serving instead of someone or something else, performed or suffered by another person as a substitute for another or a benefit or advantage of another. That's what vicarious means. Vicarious atonement is that idea that Jesus Christ took the place substitutionarily of mankind suffering the penalty of sin. 
Um, by the way, vicarious atonement is also called substitutionary uh, atonement or also penal substitution. Those are the doctrinal words you'll hear in theology books and what have you. But this idea of vicarious, uh, the, the word atonement, meaning reconciliation or making amends. Um, and then vicarious means done in place of or instead of someone else. So um, Christ substituted himself in our place to make amends between you and God. Our sin separates us from God. Atonement is the doctrine where we're reconciled back to God. And that's what Jesus does. So the literal terms of the Christian concept of vicarious atonement is that Jesus substituted for humanity, punished for our faults on the cross in order for the sins that we had committed to be forgiven and reconcile us back to God the Father. Um, is anybody happy about vicarious atonement? Man, I sure am. Um, he did that substitutionarily. The nails should have been through my hands and feet. The cross, the whipping, the thorns, the spitting, the beating, the death, um, it should have been on us. He suffered on our behalf. Uh, by the way, um, I'm probably gonna get in the weeds here a little bit, but there's two little Greek words or even prefixes that you should know about that are kind of interesting. You know when you come across the Greek word anti or the prefix anti, like antichrist? Everybody thinks, well, that means against. Because in the English way, we, when we say anti-something, it's against something. Anti-freeze, we're against freezing our engine block. Uh, it's against that. But the Greek word anti, and there's another word that's used in the same way, hooper. Hooper? Hooper and anti, yes? Those are two Greek uh, things you should know. Um, but instead of being against, th th there's a concept you should know. It's instead of or in place of. So like when we come with the ter term antichrist in the Bible, it doesn't just mean that he's against Christ. It is that too, by the way. But, but it's more that the antichrist wants to be in place of Christ. That's what antichrist is gonna do. He wants to be worshiped instead of Christ instead of, in place of, and also this Greek word hooper on behalf of. So when does the word hooper and anti come up in the New Testament? Shocking places. Like when you read in the Bible, Christ died for us. Um, you can read that phrase in the Bible several times, Christ died for us. But the word for there is hooper. Christ died on behalf of us, not just for us, but for the sake of us. Um, or instead of us, or in place of us. That's the language of the Greek New Testament. And it's the substitutionary atonement that we talk about. My dad taught me this lesson in the fourth grade. Substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement. Um, it was a concept that I learned early. Um, I've mentioned this before, but my rebellious years, fourth grade. My fourth grade year, when I was in a gang, I dealt drugs. Um, it's true, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, although the drugs weren't really drugs, I, but I told people they were drugs and I sold them and made money. So uh, I was a drug dealer, uh, gang member, uh, murder gang was our gang, but I've told you stories about fourth grade, but um, I, I, it's always funny because uh, years ago I was preaching here at Athey and my mom was watching online and she heard me say something you know, like, I got spanked by my dad every day in the fourth grade. Well, um, like a, a few months later, we're having dinner at my mom's house and Thanksgiving or something. And my mom said, Brett, oh, we just love, love your sermons. And she's always so complimenting and encouraging, you know. Um, but she said, but Brett, you know, we didn't spank you every day in the fourth grade. You were a good boy, you know, and you didn't just get spanked every day. And I said, mom, I'm pretty sure every day in the, like the fourth grade. And, and now you gotta understand my dad. My dad's, he's a hardworking guy. And he, you know, he's, and, but at dinner table, he's very calm and he just kind of sits at the head of the table and he's listening to all of us chatter. And he even kind of sometimes closes his eyes. You know, he's just kind of listening and sort of nodding. And, and mom and I were talking about this. And so finally I turned to my dad and said, dad, did you spank me every day in the fourth grade or not? And my dad just kind of quietly listened and he said, Every day. <laughs> um, now, I'm gonna get in trouble for what I'm about to say, but I don't care. Um, I'm so glad my dad spanked me every day. And dads, if you're not spanking your children, you're doing it wrong. Uh, I'm sorry if you're you know, uh, duped by the world and all this stuff about how it's all abusive. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people that spank abusively and do it totally wrong, and it is abuse. Um, I've done whole sermons on how to biblically, lovingly, uh, rightly spank a child. There's a wrong way to do it and it's abusive and there's a right way. My dad never once yelled at me, was never angry when he spanked me. Um, I was always very careful, loving, calculated. Um, but it, you know, it looked like, Brett, go to your room, you're gonna get a spanking. 
And then he would put time between me, and that time was horrible for me as a fourth grade kid. I had to wait in my room, you know, thinking I'm about to get a second. And then, and then my dad, he had a paddle in the hallway. You know, he'd go into the hall closet on the way to my room and I'd hear the door of the closet. And I was like, ah, you know, and <clears throat> um, oh, that's abuse. Nope, it was necessary. And then my dad would grab the paddle, which was about an inch and a half wide and maybe a half inch thick um, piece of trim. Um, and it was probably this long. And, and he would get it out of the hall closet and on his way to my room, you'd hear it cracking on his leg. Just whack, and like, ooh, shivers of, of, of pain, thinking about what was about to be, um, you know, uh, the, the board of correction applied to the seat of learning, if you know what I mean. But, um, <laughs> But my dad, he, now I thought that was just to intimidate, uh, but actually when I got older, I realized what my dad was doing. Did you know my dad was gauging how hard he should spank because he didn't want to overspank because uh, uh, that could be abusive, but he didn't want to underspank like my mom. When my mom spanked me, I had to feign sadness. Um, uh, I remember one time I cracked a smile because it didn't hurt so not, it hurt so nothing that I chuckled a little bit and my mom said, oh, Okay, well, I'm not gonna spank you ever again. I was like, well, that's good. And said, your dad's taking it from here. I was like, I should have worked on my feigning sadness a little more. But, but when my dad was walking down the, the hallway to my room, he was gauging how hard he should spank me. Well, the reason I'm telling you all this stuff is because there was one particular time in the fourth grade when my dad was gonna you know, do the, the normal routine where you know, he'd come in the room, tell me, Brett, do you understand what you did wrong? And I'd say, oh, yes. And, and then he would have me, I had to willingly come and, and you know, go over his knee. You know, uh, and he would you know, he'd take the paddle and, and give me the swats. And then he'd you know, hug me and we'd, he'd pray with me. And then we'd talk about how to be more successful in those things. And then we'd go out buddies and I felt restored and, and better and uh, my guilty conscience was cleared. Like there's so many good things that came out of that. But this one particular time, uh, everything was normal. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the spanking was about to proceed. And all of a sudden, whack, whack. But there was something different. I heard the crack of the paddle, but it wasn't on me. And I remember my dad spake, it was the same cracking sound, but it was no pain whatsoever. And I turned back and I saw him spanking his own leg harder than he would have with me. And I thought, what in the world's going on here? And then my dad explained to me, he said, Brett, this time I wanted to teach you something. You deserve a spanking, but I'm, I'm, I took that for you. And he explained to me uh, in little kids' terms, substitutionary atonement, that I took your place uh, and I took the penalty for you. And he explained to me how that's exactly what Jesus does for our sins. And I heard that and I remember just thinking that's so great. And then I tried to wheel and now dad, can we do it like this from now on and forevermore? <laughs> And he said, nope, just this one time. Um, but he said, but when you're an adult and you know you're a sinner, you'll know that it is forevermore, that Christ uh, took your, your penalty of sin. Um, you know, it's an interesting um, uh, thing about uh, biblical correction. Um, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So the Lord still gives us spankings, not punitive punishment, but corrective. Um, that's something the Lord does. And that's what a good parent will do as well. But this is where I, I learned to be thankful for the idea of um, vicarious atonement, uh, very much important. By the way, did you know that um, Jesus, vicariously taking your penalty, was checking more prophecy-fulfilled boxes? Um, that's a huge part of what Isaiah the prophet said. In fact, um, why don't you grab your Bible and flip over, keep your finger here in Mark, and go over to Isaiah 53. Uh, there in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. And it's there where we read uh, prophetically, Isaiah the prophet, 600 years before Jesus even was born in Bethlehem, the, the prophet made this radical, you know, vicarious atonement prediction or substitutionary atonement prediction, Isaiah 53. And it's verses, uh, we'll just look, you can read this whole chapter really, but uh, let's just look at verses three through six. It says there in uh, Isaiah 53, verse six, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Here it is, verse five. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes, that is the whipping on his back, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is Isaiah the prophet predictively, 600 years before Christ, saying here's what the Messiah will do, substitutionary atonement. It's the old preacher line. I think there's even an old gospel hymn that says he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And that's what substitutionary atonement satisfies. Um, so number one, Christ's death. The first V was his death was voluntary. The second V, Christ's death was vicarious. But the third V, as we kind of wrap things up here, Christ's death was victorious. Yeah, Jesus won the victory, he's victorious. Um, yes, but maybe even more importantly, because he's victorious, guess what? Not just him, but for us, we get to uh, engage in and enjoy victory in Jesus. Um, you know, this is what Paul the Apostle was telling the, the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's that victory that you and I so desperately need that we couldn't have apart from Jesus Christ. Did you know that there's evidence of victory over death after the crucifixion before Jesus even rose from the grave? You know, the, the resurrection is kind of like, oh yeah, Jesus won the victory over death. That's kind of obvious. And that is our big defense against, you know, people that say Jesus isn't really who he claimed to be. We say, no, the resurrection pr pr proof positive. But even before Jesus rose from the grave, there was evidence of victory over death and sin and all that. Let me give you one example or two, maybe. Matthew 27, uh, verses 50 through 53. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. That's the first evidence of victory, wouldn't you say? Because the veil in the temple it was the dividing wall between the Holy of Holies, God's presence, the Shekinah glory, the Ark of the Covenant. We had no access to God's presence before Christ died because of our sin. There was only one dude on the Day of Atonement that could go in, the high priest, to the Holy of Holies, and there was this huge curtain. Well, Brett, how does a curtain keep it? What is that, like a little shower curtain with Bugs Bunny on it or something? No, the, the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, it took 300 priests to hang the curtain. It was giant, multi-layered, weighing tons. It was heavy. And that curtain, that heavy veil was keeping people from stumbling into the holy of holies, lest you die. So when Jesus yielded up the ghost, one of the first evidence of victory was when the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Um, that's what Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 is celebrating when it says, having, you and I having brother and sisters, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he that hath consecrated for us uh, through the veil, that is to say his flesh. So when Christ's flesh was ripped, the veil of the temple was ripped and we got to go into the holy of holies. We have access to the Lord because of Jesus. That's the first evidence of victory, the ripping of the, can you imagine you're the, the Levite who's cleaning, mopping in the holy, holy, not the holy of holies, but in the holy place. And all of a sudden, uh, some afternoon, on, it's dark outside, like what's going on? Kind of like today out there with our fire smoke. I wonder what's going on. And all of a sudden, the holy of holies rips open and you're looking at the Ark of the Covenant. Or, you know, like what would you do? Run. Didn't you see Ra Raiders of the Lost Ark? I mean, eyeballs melting, ah, you know, and all that stuff where, where people are freaking. No, because you, you don't go into the Holy Holies and the veil rips, but he's not dead. Why? Because Jesus is the new and living way to God's presence. Now, the second one I'll show you is in the same verse, verse section. Um, it says, so the veil of the temple was ripped up top and the earth did quake, the rocks did rent, and then the graves were opened and bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves up after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. What, how do you describe this? Thriller. <laughs> Dead people coming out of graves? What in the world? It's almost like if you could sort of quantify this, picture Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, raising from the grave, and there's so much victory over death. It's like the, the graves, are, people are starting to pop out alive. Can you imagine your old buddy had been dead for a couple of years? He walks in, man, I'm feeling so much better. It's like, <laughs> what, what happened with you? Like, how did you get there? Life was bubbling out of the ground after Jesus died on the cross. 
because of the victory over death and the grave. Um, that's important for us to know. So all that to say, Jesus Christ, um, he died, but he did it voluntarily. He did it vicariously in your place, substitutionarily in your, as a, a substitutionary atonement for you. But thirdly and most gloriously, he did it victoriously. He won the victory over death and hell. And that's how you and I can have any, any way to have any hope. Remember last week we talked about this. There's only one way. And Jesus had victory in that way. And thus you can go to heaven because of Christ and the victory he had. Um, I love the old, um, you know, the old hymn, uh, Victory in Jesus, if you remember that. Um, that. That old hymn was one that for me, you know, Victory in Jesus, my Savior, this, this is what we can celebrate even right now. As we close this service, I want to do that. I'd love to celebrate the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Um, you know, it, it, the hymn goes, I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory how he gave me his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I know him. All my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. And that's what, that's what we celebrate when we come around the cross, the victory of Jesus. That's what we celebrate when we get the communion elements out and we remember what Jesus told us to do this often in remembrance of me. So let's finish up the service. Would you get out those little communion elements that you were uh, given on the way in? And if you didn't get one, uh, some of the crew's gonna come up and get you uh, set up with that. But you can peel off the little bottom layer first and you can break out that little piece of matzah bread that's in there and then flip it over and open up the, the top part of the cup there and prepare that as we uh, prepare our hearts as well. Lord, how thankful we are for um, the redeeming blood of your son, Jesus, that you took our place and you bore our cross. Um, Lord, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you demonstrated your love in that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And I pray, Lord, that as we take this time to consider and remember the cross in communion. Make us thankful, Lord. Um, this is so, uh, so powerful, the, the cross, the blood, the body of your son. And I pray that as we just consider you, that you'd be honored in this time. Jesus, thankful we are for the love you demonstrated. And we love you because you first loved us. And we take time right now to remember your broken body, nails in your hands and feet and the crown and the beating that you took, the whipping on your back. Lord, we we're thankful for that substitution that you made. You did it willingly, voluntarily. And by your stripes that were put on your back, we are healed. The healing that comes from the cross we eat that bread, remembering that, Lord. I pray that we'd be thankful. Um, Lord, as we remember you, as we eat of this bread, Lord, fill us full of you, more of you, less of us. 
So we thank you, Lord. We eat this bread with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Let's all eat of Christ together. And Lord, we're thankful for your blood that was shed. We thank you for sending Jesus to send that cleansing flood that we, said, that we just read of that old hymn, Lord, that, that cleansing flood of the blood of the innocent Savior. I pray that you'd wash us and cleanse us. I pray that you'd um, forgive us for our sins, Lord, and how thankful we are that daily we can come and repent and confess and you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So wash us, Lord. I pray that as a church family, as we go from this service, that we know that our sins are forgiven. We drink of you, Lord, knowing that it's, though our sins really are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Thank you, Lord, for that. So we drink deeply of your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, let's all drink together. so great a salvation. And now, Lord, as we go our way, I pray that we'd rejoice. Thank you for the cross. May you cause us to be a people of the cross, remembering and being thankful for the work there. In Jesus' name, amen.